I'm Jamie Dixon. I work as a leadership development coach and trainer. My main focus is on helping leaders influence their stakeholders. And in particular, I'm based in China. So I work with a lot of Chinese leaders, helping them influence their stakeholders overseas. And I'm also the author of The Story Habit, How Leaders Shape Stories That Drive Action. Uh, and that includes a methodology that I use with a lot of the leaders that I work with. Welcome to Leaders and Managers Hub, the podcast. And today we're joined, as you've just heard, by Jamie Dixon, all the way from China. That's my horrific Donald Trump impression. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, well, welcome, Jamie, uh, and thank you for joining us. Let's get straight into it. So, obviously, our listeners are hearing that you're in China. You've very much got an anglicized name. You speak very good English. How have you got to where you are? Tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. So, I, uh, well, it started in 2006, um, working in a coffee shop after I just graduated from university. And that's not really where you want to be when you've just graduated from university. So I was uh, quite frustrated with my situation. And, and, you know, one day I had an argument with my girlfriend at the time and uh, I decided, ah, to hell with it. I'm going to leave the country. And at the time, the easiest way of leaving the country was to go and be an English teacher. So I submitted my CV to TAFL, an English teaching website. Um, and the next morning I had job offers all over the world, uh, from Mexico, Costa Rica, South Korea, Japan, and China. And, um, well, long story short, um, three weeks later, I was single and in China. <laughs> and so I, I planned on just staying for a year. I, I thought this will be my gap year, um, but I'm still here <laughs> 16, 17 years later. And, um, you know, I, I worked as an English teacher for about two years. I, I spent that time also learning Mandarin in my spare time. And, you know, I decided I wanted to make a future for myself in China, in Shanghai in particular. So I leveraged my Mandarin skills to get into corporate. Um, that was my introduction to the world of leadership development. And um, after a few years of working in corporate, I worked for Amway China for their training institute. Uh, I eventually left and I started working for a small training company, running around China, delivering things like presentation skills and email writing workshops. And then afterwards, I set up on my own. And so for the last, oh, about eight years, I think I've been working on my own now. And I I've gradually focused more and more in uh, on what I do now. I, I've done all sorts of trainings in the past because so many things that pique my interest. But Right now, the, the thing that really interests me the most is around influencing and particularly influencing the stories that people believe in. And that, that's the idea behind my my latest book at the moment. It's about shaping the stories that people believe in, which I believe is what storytelling is ultimately about. 
So I work with a lot of Chinese leaders in particular who are trying to influence their leaders overseas in the multinational companies they work in. And their leaders have a lot of stories about China, about human rights abuses, intellectual property theft, and all of this kind of stuff. Some of it's true, some of it's not true, and some of it's somewhat true, but these leaders have to work around these narratives and, and influence these narratives in order to, to get results. So that's kind of where I've come from and, and what I'm doing right now. Thank you very much. I guess it would be easy for us to go, oh my gosh, we've got Jamie here and he's in China, so let's make this all about China and, and how weirdly different they are to how we are over here. And that would be entirely wrong and misleading. But but I am curious to explore a little bit about China, but mm. from the perspective of how actually unweird it is and, and actually maybe how weird we are over here <laughs> when we look at over there. And I just want to touch on the, the human rights thing, because it is a massive thing for a lot of people as soon as they hear China. And it, it's not our place on this podcast to, to make judgment about how how political systems operate, other than we are humanists and any detrimental behaviors towards any group of human beings is wrong for mm. whatever reasons it might be. And that's our standpoint. But beyond that, we don't make particular judgment. You know, you could look at any or most regimes around the world and there's threads that you could pick out where things aren't necessarily great. And I know here in the UK at the moment, we're having this big debate about the Rwanda model where we're effectively taking migrants who are coming across the channel from mainland Europe and exporting them to Rwanda. And the fact that there may be a little bit around dog whistle politics, economics, and other things involved in that. So just for our listeners, there'll be stuff we're talking about, but we're, we're curious and we're not making judgment. Mm. And that's important. So I'm kind of interested. So, so you arrived, what did you study at uni, by the way? <laughs> I studied environmental science. Did nothing to do with environmental science afterwards, although I, I did do a master's degree later on in uh, global human resources management, which is very re related to what I what I do right now. Okay. Yeah. So you arrive in China and it's a significant point in your life because a relationship has just ended. You're making this this sort of big change. What were your first impressions when you when you arrived in this I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, the rhetoric around China and how so vastly different it is from us has been around for many decades. So there would have been a little bit of that back then as well. What what struck you when you stepped off the plane? Mm, sure. You know, when I first arrived, there's not a lot I remember about what really struck me when I first arrived. Maybe, uh, maybe several things. One is because I arrived in Shanghai and uh, the buildings are just massive, absolutely massive in Shanghai. I, I remember last time I was in Brighton in the UK, I was just amazed at how much sunlight there was <laughs> because there's no skyscrapers to block it out. I didn't realize just how tall the buildings are over here in Shanghai, but that, that was probably the first thing that struck me. I remember on the car journey to the city I was going to live in, I uh, I was quite thirsty, so we stopped at a restaurant and I asked for a glass of water, um, and they gave me a glass of hot water, uh, which I 
that was extremely weird to me. But hot water is a massive thing in China. Um, no matter what ailment you have, if you have a cough, a cold, cancer, or whatever, uh, hot water is the solution. And I, I've come to actually quite appreciate hot water, actually. Um, I think it's it's better for the digestive system. And if I am feeling sick, cold water, I don't respond very well to now. Hot water uh, makes me feel a bit better. So hot water is, uh, is a very, very big thing in China, which I found quite difficult to get used to. And I, I think the other thing that really struck me was just walking up and down the street. Everyone was staring at me. Um, because I was one of the very few foreigners in uh, in that in that city. Uh, it was a city of two million people or, or one million people, which is actually by our standards quite a big city. But um, by China, it's it's nothing. And I was an alien there, <laughs> and people were looking at me like I was an alien. So it was it was quite a, a a different experience. My first time really being in a place where I really really stood out. Hmm. It's, it's curious as you were talking about the hot water there. I was thinking because obviously I'm I'm Irish and we we have a similar relationship with Guinness. So <laughs> wh whether you've got like a cold or the flu or your arms hanging off or whatever it is, you're given Guinness and you either recover or you die. <laughs> and, it, and, and that's how it works. And and Guinness is the cure for everything. So yeah, if people think that hot water is odd, hey. I present to you Guinness. It, it hot Guinness or cold Guinness? Oh well, well, and there's this weird thing, right? Where <laughs> they they would heat up a poker and they would stick the poker into the Guinness, and <laughs> and nobody's ever been able to tell me what on earth that was about. <laughs> okay. Um, geographically, whereabouts is Shanghai located within China? If you don't mind me asking, it's right on the. East, the East Coast, not too far away from Korea and Japan. Uh, South Korea and Japan, they're both like a two-hour flight away. So it's very, very close to those. Mm. Yeah. Most of China, um, I know China is a massive country, but most people live along the East Coast in a thin sliver. Uh, and Shanghai is such a convenient place because it's directly in between Beijing and Hong Kong. Uh, and there's a few other provinces nearby. So it's an extremely convenient place to live in in China. Mm. So mm. if a lot of people are kind of concentrated on that side of the country, what, what's going on in the vast expanses of the rest of the country? Is it agriculture or like what goes on? Yeah, I think there is a lot of agriculture. Um, there's a lot of smaller cities, probably with a lot of manufacturing. And I, I think there's, you know, there's actually quite a big issue in China right now because, you know, they, they've used manufacturing to develop their economy. However, now a lot of people don't want to work in manufacturing. There's a lot of blue collar jobs and people don't want to do blue collar work anymore. They want to do white collar work, but there's not enough white collar jobs. So there's a lot of people, um, a lot of blue collar jobs, but no one wants to do those and not enough white collar jobs. So there's a lot of uh, labor imbalance right now in China. So there's some of the, the biggest cities like Shanghai, Hangzhou, Shenzhen, Beijing, these kind of cities. They have a lot of big companies, a lot of headquarters for Chinese companies. So a lot of young people flocking to these. But outside of these cities, there's not a lot going on, <laughs> really. Mm. It's, it's quite a high pressure for, for young Chinese people 
Mm. I'm curious that that sort of movement from blue collar to white collar, does that speak of maybe the emergence of a middle class within China? Well, it speaks of a change in values. When I first arrived, in fact, yeah, this is one of the things, going back to your earlier questions, this this is one of the things that really struck me when I first arrived was how materialistic people were in China at that time. They all wanted Gucci handbags. Um, uh, They wanted just brand labels on everything, even if it was fake. They just wanted things and they wanted money to buy things. Uh, And it was, I I really didn't like that. Um, But after a few years, people's values started to shift uh, and they shifted from things to experiences. And with the youth in particular, there's a a massive, massive problem, um, which I think probably keeps a lot of government officials up at night at the moment in that, Uh, the cost of living is extremely high. Um, Most young people on a monthly salary, I mean, if we say, for example, the average person's monthly salary will be maybe 8,000 renminbi. Uh, It's like about 800 pounds a month. And if they want to live in a big city like Shanghai, they're going to be looking at a property price of probably 8 million renminbi. Um, and And there's just... There's just no chance. So they could go back to their home cities, the smaller cities, um, where the property is much cheaper, but there's no work opportunities there. So they're kind of trapped. And so there's this um, this revolution that they're calling it called the Tanking Revolution, the lying flat revolution, where the youth are basically, I give up. Um, (laughs) There's no point. I don't want to work hard anymore. If I work hard, what's it for? Uh, And so it's 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 kind of sad to see because up to this point maybe up until a few years ago for the last several decades every single year in china life just got significantly better and people were full of hope and optimism uh, and they had dreams and they were entrepreneurial and now the young generation are coming through and it's just not the same for them. So it's created a massive shift in values uh, as all sorts of uh, social problems on the horizon. Uh, there are fewer, fewer children being born right now. Um, and uh, so that means there's going to be an aging population. People can't afford things. The cost of living is is going through the roof for many young people. So there's a lot of a lot of pressures on society right now so it's uh it, it's quite a sad time uh, to see what's happening in china right now it's very different to what it was just a few years ago that's really interesting because we, we also see that kind of pattern mirrored on this side of the world uh, if i take my own country as an example dublin at the moment i mean they are struggling to deliver infrastructure projects in and around Dublin because they they simply cannot get people can't afford to live in Dublin so they there isn't the workforce there to deliver these infrastructure projects certainly at an affordable level but for decades and decades everything's been so Dublin centric that actually it's going to take a massive and concerted effort to decentralize everything and have it a little bit here in the UK as well. I mean, the government of the day talk about this leveling up agenda. 
where they're trying to increase the aspirations and the opportunities in other parts of the country that aren't London and the Southeast. And it's literally just undo, trying to undo, trying, uh, yeah, trying, uh, trying, but not necessarily making much effort. I don't know. Um, but trying, trying to move things away from that sort of London centric uh, setup system, because it's just becoming increasingly inaffordable to, to be in London. Mm, so, yeah. And, and that's creating all sorts of social and aspirational problems. You know, they've already demonstrated that educational attainment in parts of the country that are disadvantaged are a lot less purely because the young people don't see the opportunities around them that maybe somebody in London or the southeast of England does see. And, it, and mm-hmm. it's very much that mindset thing. So like, if we think that, you, you know, this is entirely a Chinese problem, it's not. I, I think it's more of a global malaise. And I think this I think it's got a long way to go before people actually realize how how damaging it is. I, yeah, I was just going to say it, it, it's created a lot of cultural diversity, actually. You know, you look at China, it's a very homogenous looking country, but actually it's incredibly diverse. Uh, you have generational differences, which are huge. My wife's parents lived through the communist period. Uh, just around the time my wife was born, they were still using food tokens to buy food. My wife was born. She's lived through the period of economic growth, which is just unmatched to any any other period of economic development in the history of our species. And now we have the, this youth who are you know, at the peak of development and... The, you know it's plateauing and and you know, there's a lot of regional differences as well and, and class differences but there's huge uh cultural differences within china's borders so it's actually an incredibly diverse country even though it doesn't look it mm. well a country of that physical size can't really help but be diverse i mean china if we go back some millennia at least a good few centuries like china was it was at the center of the economic powerhouse of the world back then and it was a melting pot from everybody from the vikings to the the mongols and and african cultures and and it was this huge big melting pot so it would be kind of weird if it wasn't actually massively diverse and maybe the weird bit is that for a period of time it tried to go through this homogenization and okay so everybody's going to look at and act and and think the same and and maybe that's why in the longer term that project won't ultimately succeed because Mm. human culture will reassert itself over time if it's given enough space i guess Mm. Um, so i'm interested to talk a little bit about leadership and, Mm. and and leadership in china we we have this perspective uh, in this part of the world that because of our what we're taught in school about you know the Ming Dynasty and 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 the the administrative achievements of the culture over there, which I, I have to say my ignorance is I don't know a huge amount about it. It could really have all happened in one very small part of the country, and 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 been completely ignored in the rest. But we we're taught a lot about how. You know, the Chinese administrative mindset 
was what created those those long lasting dynasties. Mm. What has your experience of leadership in China been? Mm. Uh, also quite varied. So if you look at, at the government, for example, the government are extremely bureaucratic. A lot of administrative stuff uh, is just bureaucratic to the max. But give an example, um, you know, my wife and I have a small company. It's just us two. And for our accounting, uh, it was only a, a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago, we were still using Windows XP to actually do any of the accounting because the accounting software was like 20 years old and they never updated it. And when you give an invoice, you have to issue something called a fa piao, which is it's a piece of paper um, printed on special printer and you have to stamp it. With, a, with still a physical stamp. So an issue that happened recently with the Shanghai lockdown is that a lot of business just couldn't be completed because no one could get to the office for two months. So no one could stamp these pieces of paper. So you see a lot of that kind of bureaucracy um, and you, you see a lot of shortcuts around the bureaucracy. Uh, it, it's not as bad as it used to be. Um, there used to be a lot of corruption uh, maybe like a decade ago, but over the last decade, it has improved significantly, but there are still shortcuts here and there. But when it comes to Chinese businesses, the leadership you see in Chinese businesses is is very different and also very varied. It's not so bureaucratic. It might be more, uh, so for example, they, the word is paternalistic more like a, a father figure or uh, maternalistic, a, a mother figure, uh, someone who was at the top. I remember when I worked for Amway, we had a vice president who everyone called Mayeye, Martin, uh, Grandpa Martin is what they called him. So it's not uncommon to hear uh, the employees call the senior leader, grandpa, uncle, grandma, auntie, or whatever. Uh, in the more traditional companies, actually. In the more modern companies, so the Chinese high-tech companies like Tencent, Alibaba, um, the Chinese leaders, they're a bit cooler. Uh, they have to be because they work with a lot of young people, but they are very ambitious, ambitious to the max. And sometimes that comes out in being super driving, super pushing, and expecting a lot uh, in my opinion too much from their staff so the uh, the famous example is the 996 work culture where employees work nine to nine six days a week um, in reality work a lot more hours than that something that in recent years has come under a lot of government scrutiny because it was creating it's one of the reasons uh, China's population is declining because young people are working so many hours, they're not making enough money, so they're not having babies. So you do get a lot of that. Um, you get some leaders, I think like other, uh, any other country as well, you get some leaders who are really horrible, some leaders who are really, really nice and good people. I, I do find a lot, of, a lot of Chinese leaders over here actually are, they're very, very caring uh, and uh, and really care very much for their team. So it, it's quite diverse, basically. But those are some of the typical things that you see. I'm, I'm curious. So there's a couple of ways to approach this, but it, it all leads to the same place, I guess. 
So there's a lot of talk and, and heat and emotion in this part of the world about what China is and what China isn't. Mm. Um, and, and like you said earlier, you know, some of it's true, some of it's absolute BS and, and it's difficult to navigate your way through and try and find out where the truth is mm. in, in China and, and particularly in Chinese business and Chinese leadership. Is there very much the we're Chinese and this is how we do things? Or is there that, oh, that's what they're saying about us over there. We're aware of that. And so we're we're sort of integrating that into how we operate. Are there Chinese business leaders going to Western business schools? Are they, you know, is there that pressure from outside, that expectation affecting the way leadership is developed within China? Uh, again, it's actually quite varied, and there are definitely those Chinese businesses. Alibaba is one that comes to mind. Um, Alibaba is a company I actually refuse to work with, and I know of several other suppliers who don't like to work with them. And my experience of Alibaba has been that um, this is our Alibaba way, uh, and you know we're really. Uh, really amazing and, and and to be fair they they have achieved an awful lot but it's created an arrogance in my opinion and probably quite a few other people's opinions a, an air of arrogance about this is our way uh take it or leave it and yeah we we know we're not nice to work with uh so either you work with us or you don't work with us there, there is that attitude in some companies in other companies, so for example, the smaller to medium-sized companies that do a lot of international trade, I think they are much more invested in uh, building better relations, uh, better international relations. And they, they really try to build a partnership with their customers and try to understand their customers and adapt to their customers and partner with their customers. And you, find, you won't find that kind of arrogance in, in those kinds of companies. So you, you do get it. One of the biggest challenges in multinational companies, so for example, European companies or US companies that have set up in China, is that the China market situation is so incredibly unique, so, so different to any of the other markets that they operate in. And it's so hard to explain. And if these companies don't adapt to the China market conditions, they really struggle to do business in China. Uh, so let me get a bit more specific. One of the things is speed, China speed. Everything just moves ridiculously fast. If you go on Taobao, which is like the equivalent of Amazon, you expect, you know, you, you chat to a customer service agent. They're not a robot. They are a person. And you expect to reply now, which means if you're going to open a shop on Taobao, you have to have people being able to answer questions immediately. A lot of local competitors, if they're manufacturing, if they're doing construction, they will do super fast, super cheap, and to increasingly high level of quality. Chinese suppliers may have a reputation for poor quality, but that was from years ago. In recent years, their quality has caught up with, and in some cases even surpassed, uh, that of Western companies. So you have a lot of Western companies who've been in China for a long time, but their local competitors have caught up 
they're doing a better job than them, they're moving faster than them, they're doing things cheaper than them, they understand their customers better than them. And you have these Chinese leaders in China, in these multinational businesses going, <laughs> we really need to change the way we're doing things. Then trying to communicate this to Western leaders and all sorts of problems arise. One problem is because their Western leaders, especially in the last two years, have not been to China. China's borders have been closed. And you can explain so much, but it really requires being here on the ground to see how things work. Uh, and so that creates a big gap of understanding. Another issue is that a lot of Chinese leaders, uh, due to language barriers, you know, they're not native English speakers, <laughs> fair enough. Um, and also cultural barriers, they're more indirect in their communication and a bit more subtle and have multiple layers of meaning, which is not always interpreted by Western leaders. So there's all sorts of communication gaps that arise. And coming back to what I said at the very beginning, the stories that these Western leaders believe in. So if I give an example, uh, you know, the example I always use is a coffee machine maker based in Switzerland. The Chinese team are trying to persuade them, sell, we need to sell the coffee machines on Tmall, which is you know, one of China's main e-commerce platforms. And the leaders in the HQ have this story about counterfeit products being sold on Tmall, which may have been true several years ago, but is not so much true now. And we have a website. So if people want to buy things, they can come to our website. But the reality is no one goes on websites in China and there's no counterfeit products. And if they, they don't sell their coffee machines on the Tmall platform, then no one's going to buy their coffee machines. So there are so many barriers. It, it's so, so challenging being a Chinese leader in a multinational company right now. Uh, so many challenges for them. Yeah. So it, it's a very challenging time for people. And, and so that begs the question, the narratives, the stories that uh, pervade in, in the West, the demonization of China as this bogeyman kind of figure way over there, which completely dehumanizes people for a start. Mm -hmm. it's, it's dehumanizing language and it's very much othering. And you've really got to question what's the motive behind it, really. But also, you know, there's elements of that starting to come through in the in the leadership, the battle that's going on in the UK uh, and everything else. Mm. What do we need to do uh, other than just being curious and not taking things at face value to de-demonize de this thing? Because this is a country of it's a vast country. It's a huge population. They're very ingenious you know the chinese diaspora has been all around the world and and influenced everything from the u.s railroads to you know everything you can't walk around the street in a uk town without coming across a chinese restaurant you know they're they are very they're a bit a bit like us irish we kind of go to a place and we make ourselves part of it kind of thing mm. so there's a massive amount of adaptability and flexibility there how do we get closer to China and to, to be able to trade and uh, not just economically, but culturally and, and, and all that? What story do we need to recreate and tell to change that narrative? Mm -hmm. This is a question I have a lot of 
opinions on. And I think that's probably the first place I'd like to start mm. is to emphasize that an opinion is just an opinion. And one very interesting thing about being a Westerner in China, in China, people are not so much encouraged to have opinions about things, which from a Westerner's perspective sounds really authoritarian and dystopian. Actually, I find it very liberating. It is so liberating to sit at a dinner table and not have to talk about Brexit or, or whatever and not have to listen to family members argue about politics. I find it liberating. And I also find it means that a lot of the Chinese people I meet and know about a lot of topics, they don't take their opinions seriously because they know it's just an opinion. Whereas I find in the West, we take our opinions so seriously, we almost confuse them with the truth. So I think it's extremely important to remember that no matter what opinion we have, it's just an opinion, it's not the truth. And I think the second point leading on from that is to remember that the world is an incredibly complicated place. Uh, any story we have is an attempt to simplify complexity. China is a fantastic example of complexity. And I think the Chinese government in particular, because, yeah, um, they've done some bad things like any other government on the planet. In my opinion, and I think this is probably a fact, if you were to overthrow the Chinese government and replace it with a democracy, it would be a disaster. I've, I honestly think it would be an absolute disaster and it wouldn't be in anyone's interests. And yes, the Chinese government has done some bad things, some things I strongly disagree with, but that doesn't mean they are those bad things. They actually do a lot more good things that don't get talked about. Over the last decades, they have pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, which is a remarkable achievement. I, I, I'm not entirely sure of this one, but I believe they have made significant progress in terms of uh, protecting the environment. They are incredibly innovative. If you look at their infrastructure, for example, the high-speed railway network that they've developed throughout the country, it puts our railways to shame. I, I feel like when I go back to the UK, I've gone back in time 30 years. It, it, it's just so different. So China is incredibly complicated. You can't use one story to paint a picture of the whole of China. And I would say, finally, that, you know, we don't need to be partners with China. Uh, I think in some areas, definitely keep a partnership. But one of the reasons I think there are all these issues with China is because a lot of Western countries, a lot of Western businesses made themselves too dependent on China. And it doesn't matter if you're depending on China or anything else. If you make yourself too dependent on one thing, of course, that's going to create problems. Um, you shouldn't have set up your entire supply chain in one country, uh, especially a country who maybe has a set of values that you don't agree with. So I think um, look in the mirror is what I would say to a lot of the anti-China people. And you know, there's going to be things I agree with them about and things I strongly disagree with them about and things I think have completely swept under the carpet. Um, so I think it's just overall a very, very complicated issue. And 
I hope people can remember that it's complicated. It's not as simple as these narratives try to make out. Yeah. I, I often just, when people offer a very strong opinion that is delivered as fact, we, which is kind of the basis of populism, um, certainly over here, don't let the facts get in the way of a good opinion. I often uh, invite people to consider their own family systems and appreciate the, you know, explain in three sentences, you know, the, the culture of your family system. And people can't do it because families by their very nature are complex systems. And mm. why do we expect a country as vast as China to be simple? So mm. any... All I would say to people is be cautious of the simple narrative because mm. what what is it discounting? Yeah, and where does it come from as well? Mm. <laughs> I, I have to say I, I've been amazed at how these narratives of China have just taken over. If we take, for example, Huawei, like it was just several years ago, uh, the worst thing you'd hear about Huawei is a government leader or senior official has concerns i saw zero proof i have not seen anything to prove that huawei is dangerous i'm not saying there is no proof but i have seen zero proof but i remember in 2013 edward snowden came out with mountains of proof of what our own governments are doing and we all know what Facebook is doing and what all of these social media platforms are doing, what Google's doing, what Apple's doing. We know what they're doing. We have the proof, but we ignore that uh, because China's the enemy. I, I just find it amazing how, how easily people are manipulated. Yeah, like the demonization of Huawei, uh, because I dabble a little bit in the, in the telecommunications industry. The demonization of Huawei my question is, okay, so Huawei are kind of been removed from a lot of Western systems. Where's the money going? Look for the, what are the incentives for people to, um, to peddle the stories of Huawei? Some of which are probably true and some of which are probably completely nowhere near any truth. Hmm. But follow the money. Who's benefiting from the situation that has been generated and ask mm. yourself the question then what is the motive uh, there's a lot around that um and it does surprise me sometimes how for for some people it's like it's too it's too difficult to deal with it's too big a consideration and and yet conspiracy theories abound around the globe but some of the most blatant things that are in front of us we we can't they're overwhelming. So it's mm. easier to say Huawei bad, everybody else good, end of story. I, I think media is also a really interesting example because we look at the Chinese media and we say it's state-owned, therefore we can't trust it. But for some reason, we can trust media that is run by business people as if they have zero agenda or zero interest in manipulating our opinions. <laughs> I, I, I just don't understand how people don't see that. <laughs> like we, we had the thing uh, back some time ago. It was the, I can't remember what the name of the inquiry was, the, the Levison inquiry. 
in you know into some of the practices that the media were perpetuating including like hacking the voicemails of people who were dead and and stuff like that and yeah. and through that inquiry it became clear the the cesspit levels of interaction between political leaders here in the UK and media moguls mm. and yet you know there was a big hue and cry about it at the time and you never hear about it now and yet like it's happening every day we're we're having these sensational stories in the right wing media here in the UK about stuff that blatantly is not true and does not stand up to fact checking mm. but it's like well if you don't agree with what we're saying it's complete hogwash and that is around brexit and and stuff like that and you know it's it just for the, a large amount of people, I think it just switches them off, and they're like, "I don't know who to trust, so I'm not going to listen to any of it," which is a shame. Jamie, I'm interested the relationship between. I mean, China is, to all intents and purposes, still a communist country. It has a, a one-party leadership, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and yet, economically, as we've talked about, it's gone through this massive. Uh, economic explosion driven by consumerism and capitalism. How do those things sit for a leader of an organization in China? How do they hold those two things to be true? So I remember I was delivering a workshop one time and during the workshop, someone came up to give a presentation. Everyone in the group was Chinese and uh, at one point in their presentation, they asked, who in this room is a volunteer for the Communist Party? And about half of the people put their hands up. Uh, and I, I didn't realize, uh, I, I'd never actually considered just how many of the people I work with are volunteers uh, for the Communist Party. But there are an incredible amount. That doesn't mean they are full-time employees. It doesn't mean they are uh, government officials. Uh, it just means they do some voluntary activities for the government. And so the, the government is heavily involved in a lot of aspects of life. And in organizations, you tend to have um, government uh, departments responsible for communicating with the government. Uh, in some cases, you may even have government officials working in the organization. I'm not entirely sure about that, um, but they have to work very closely with the government to uh, make sure they're following the laws and uh, doing things in the way the government wants them to do them. Uh, so I think that's kind of how they balance it. And I'm not so much an expert on economics or politics, so I, I, I don't know too much about this. But generally, the government is quite heavily involved in a lot of things. And then past a certain point, they will get their hands involved. Before that point, they'll, they'll stay hands off, just follow the rules make sure you don't do anything bad. So there is quite a lot of control, but still room for for freedom as well, for, for doing things independently as well. It's a bit, it, it's so complicated, even I don't understand it, to be honest. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Maybe an analogy is, for example, I live in a compound, uh, as most people in China do. And during lockdown, so uh, we have we have something like 20 buildings in our compound during lockdown, you had the uh, the Hui, which is like the council for your particular street. Now, they will decide if you're on lockdown or if you're not on lockdown, if you're safe to open up or if you're not safe to open up. Then 
beneath them, well, well, they will report to the district and the district leaders will report to the city leaders and the city leaders report to the provincial leaders and the provincial leaders will report to the central leaders. Even beneath the council leaders, you have volunteers. We have volunteers for the compound. Uh, we have the compound maintenance people who will report to the council. And then even in each individual building, we had a volunteer for our building who was responsible for getting us all to come out and do the, the COVID tests. So it's incredibly layered into life. And yeah, I wouldn't say it works perfectly, uh, but they are. This is what I meant earlier when I said that if you uprooted and replaced the Chinese political system with another one, it is so deeply rooted into everyday life that it would just be a disaster if you did that because you just uproot everything. Mm. <laughs> it would be really, really messy. So I, I think they're probably just just so deeply rooted into so many parts of life that you know we just have to have to work with them. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's just another way of being. It's just another way of doing things. I mean, here in, in, in the West, and certainly in the UK, we have, it's like yin and yang situation, where whereas in China, the government infiltrates itself a little bit into business. In the UK, business infiltrates its way into politics through lobbying. And who's to say one is better than the other? They are just two different ways of being. Yeah, I give an example. During the lockdown, there are a lot of things that were very terrible and that you can point fingers at the government and say that they did a terrible job of and uh, irresponsible and, and so on. Um, for, for example, we were running out of food in our first two weeks. Uh, they'd cut off all deliveries. They shut down all supermarkets and everyone was at home. We were running out of food and we were rationing. But the government got their act together and they sent deliveries of food to every building. Uh, and so for the first two weeks, we were rationing. For the last few weeks, we couldn't fit the food into the fridge. <laughs> we had so much food. So to be fair to the government, I believe they made a lot of mistakes during that lockdown, but they, they tried their best to make up for those mistakes because to them, they cannot afford to lose the trust of the people. If they lose the trust of the people, it would be really bad, <laughs> really, really bad. In the West, I think leaders lose the trust of the people quite a lot. Um, we've seen it quite recently with Boris Johnson. You know, everyone just knows it's all right. We'll just get another leader in soon. So, but it, that's a line that if were if it were to be crossed in China. I think it would be very, very, very bad. <laughs> and so uh, there's every single effort to avoid crossing that line, which means the government actually looks after their people quite well in, in many cases. Yeah. And so to the book, mm. tell us where the book has come from. Mm. So the book started maybe about six years ago when a lot of clients started reaching out to me all of a sudden asking for storytelling training and storytelling is a bit of a buzzword in my opinion um i i think a lot of people don't really understand what we mean by storytelling and when clients started reaching out to me for that i didn't really understand why i didn't really understand what they actually meant by it because i'd ask them why would you like storytelling training and they'd say well we have this group of engineers who are terrible at giving monthly reports and we want them to give better monthly reports. So I'd then go off and research about storytelling and I'd find things like the hero's journey. 
which is a structure for telling stories where it starts with a character who's normal and then something happens, they overcome a challenge and they become a hero and then they return to their home as a hero. And I was thinking, how, how could they use this to make their monthly reports better? Surely that would just make their monthly reports worse because it's just overkill. It just doesn't work. Uh, and so I got really curious about what we mean by storytelling and set off on doing a lot of research. You know, I've written a few books before. And one of the things I really enjoy about writing books is just the research process. And I start with questions. And one of the questions was, what is the meaning of storytelling? And I later on realized that what we mean by storytelling is making meaning. So that led to another question is, what is the meaning of meaning? And this led me down loads and loads of rabbit holes. And several years later, I wrote a book called Story Habit, long story short. Um, in this process, I came up with this framework, which is, you know, it, it's quite straightforward. Relate, challenge, resolve. And the idea is that any story will always start by first relating to the audience. It'll be about a character in a situation the audience can relate to. And once the audience relate to this, they start to immerse themselves in this story. They start to imagine being that person in the story. And then the story brings about a challenge because a story is always about change. Something has to change. So when that change creates a challenge, we have a really interesting story. So character meets a challenge. And because the audience are really immersed at this point, they're invested in that character and they feel the pain the character is going through in that challenge. So they want to see how the character overcomes the challenge. So that's then the resolve part where the character figures out an action and a way of solving the problem. So any story you can summarize into relate, challenge, resolve. But relate, challenge, resolve, what I love about this is it works in exactly the same way for influencing people. So if you want to influence people, if you want to persuade people, you are essentially trying to persuade them to change the stories that they believe in. And, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about today, Ray, is about the stories people believe in about China. And we've been um, attempting to shape uh, what stories we'd like them to believe about China. And so when we do this, what we first want to do is instead of going straight to challenging and saying, your story's wrong, my story's right, and here's why, which is completely natural. First, we want to go to relate. And we want to show them that we understand why they believe that and how they came to believe that. And then once we do enough relating, they'll be nodding their heads a lot. Then we can start prodding their stories and start to challenge their stories. And that's when we change their minds. And then when they've changed their minds, then we can go into resolve, which is where they take action. It's where we help them figure out what is the action they need to take uh, based on this new story. So that is the outcome of, of the story habit. And the reason I call it the story habit is because for each of the relate, challenge, resolve, these are individual skills. And there's several simple habits for each of those skills that can help people develop those skills in the easiest way. So that's where the story habit came from. Mm. And was this, did this evolve um, for you in the context of China or was it a more global sort of consideration? 
Well, I it definitely, definitely my work with a lot of Chinese leaders uh, definitely shaped it. But I, I think it's more, you know, I, I call storytelling the language of the mind. And um, the international audiences I've shared relate challenge resolve with, it seems to have exactly the same impact as with Chinese leaders. But I would say that um, my experience in China has definitely shaped how I approach researching and writing and, and creating these kinds of frameworks. Um, because if I give an example, the Chinese people are extremely pragmatic, uh, which means getting away from ideology and just focusing on, you know, what do I do to get the result I want? And, you know, if I didn't adopt Chinese pragmatism, I would have looked at what is out there about storytelling and I would have found the hero's journey. And I probably would have just stuck to the hero's journey, um, which, in my opinion, isn't very practical for the leaders I work with. It's great if you're writing a, uh, a novel or a fantasy book like Game of Thrones. It's not really applicable for redoing your monthly reports or bringing more meaning into everyday conversations. So I tried to focus instead on what do people do to get results? Uh, let go of this academic stuff. What do people actually do to get results? And that I definitely credit uh, Chinese culture's influence for because uh, they're very pragmatic and I love pragmatism and and. I think the story habit is, is a very pragmatic approach to storytelling for, for leaders in particular. Hmm. I'm just curious if the if a slightly more collectivist cultural history lends itself to that initially the need to relate to somebody um, hmm. before we move forward with anything else. Whereas hmm. over here we've been cultured to be very individualistic and be very yeah. clear in our own opinions, and therefore we're right and everybody else is wrong. I'm just mindful, like, one mm. of the things we learned about the, you know, the rise of populism was, okay, so there's this group of people over here, and they have a completely contrary opinion to us, and their behavior seemed completely contrary to us. So we're just going to be incredulous and laugh at them mm. and say they're crazy, they're wrong, you know, whatever, deluded, mm. everything else, without actually sitting with them and going, hey, tell me about your life so that mm. I can be curious to understand how you've got to where you are. Because like you said, telling people that they're wrong and you're right, that immediately closes down discourse. Yeah. And we're never going to get to resolve if that's the step that we start out at in transactional analysis, they talk about the discount matrix and they talk about when you're working as a consultant with an organization, you can't shout at them from across the room and say, Hey, come over here. It's better over here. You mm. want to go to where they are, relate to them, contact before contract, and then take them on a journey. Mm. I'm just interested that is the more sort of Eastern collectivist approach to things does it lend itself slightly better to your model? I hadn't thought about that before. And I think, I think you're right, actually. I think there are also a lot of exceptions. But generally speaking, you know, if I give an example, a typical example in an international company, if you're having a virtual meeting 
and it will be a lot of Europeans and Americans and then Asian people on the line. Who are the people speaking the most? The Westerners. <laughs> They're the ones speaking the most. They're the ones sharing what they think. They're the ones advocating their point. Uh, they're the ones trying to challenge the ideas. And the ones listening the most generally tend to be from Asia, not just from China, but also from the Confucian cultures, Korea, Japan, but also from other parts of Asia. In fact, with a lot of the training companies that I work with, there's a lot of, you know, they view the Asia Pacific region as very difficult to engage because they tend to stay very quiet. What is happening is from the Asian participants' perspective, they are being respectful and they are listening because you know, they don't want to interrupt you. They don't want to show that they disagree with you. They are trying to show respect. Sometimes as well, it's also because of language barriers. Uh, they're shy. They're afraid of making mistakes. Uh, and sometimes it's because they, uh, you know, they're just introverted and, and a bit more shy. But generally, it's because they're trying to show respect. And in the West, and I'm generalizing here because there's a lot of Western cultures and a lot of diversity in, in the West. In the West, we tend to be a lot more independent in thought. We have spent a lot more time thinking about what we think of things, what I think of things. And we are much more skilled at expressing our opinions and our viewpoints very, very uh, assertively. And it's a massive challenge for a lot of the Asian participants I work with. Uh, they, they just don't know how to speak up. They don't know how to get a word in in these situations. I, I would say, though, that there are exceptions. And I think one exception is, is basically human nature. When you have a really pressing need, well, it, when I have a really pressing need, I don't care about anyone else. That's human nature. So you might see it with salespeople, for example, uh, maybe less experienced salespeople under a lot of pressure to get the sale. Uh, they're not going to be very, you know, they're not going to try and relate to you. They're going to try and push you uh, because that's all they know how to do. So that's probably one of the exceptions. And I'd say another exception, which I think is more typical in the Confucian cultures, not all Asian cultures, but the Confucian cultures, Korea, Japan, China, is they are very in-group, out-group oriented. If I know you, I will talk to you. I'll be nice to you. If I don't know you, I won't talk to you. <laughs> so um, you get a lot of that. Uh, well, in Asia, in, in China, Korea, Japan, they don't know you. They don't talk to you. <laughs> um, so it can be very difficult sometimes for them to build those relationships. But if we're going to take a generalization, I would say most of the time, put Western people and Asian people in a room together. The Asians will spend more time listening than the Westerners. I, I think generally speaking, that's what you would see. So I, I think you're right. I hadn't thought of that before. So yeah, thank you. I'm curious because you've referred to the like the Confucian societies. What part religion plays in in leadership in in China? Zero. <laughs> it's it's very frowned upon. Uh, it's actually uh, yeah, religion is is not welcome <laughs> in China right now. Uh, so I, I'd say zero. Oh, of any denomination. Uh, yeah. Um, well, 
Muslim Christianity are not very welcome in China right now. Buddhism, maybe more so, um, although that you could argue that's not really a religion. Confucianism is not really a religion. It's more of a philosophy. And I think it's not really something people say they're Confucianist or say they're Confucian, um, but more it's part of their culture. The, you know, it's like a fish in water. You're not so much aware of it. Taoism may also play a role, but similar to Confucianism, I would say religion plays zero, <laughs> zero role in leadership in China. And um, uh, that that's the way the government would like it, it seems. Mm. Okay. And so back to the to the book and the future, Jamie, where are you going? What what do you want to achieve? What's your what's your next purpose? Hmm. So I'm in the process of actually moving back to the UK. I've oh, been here. Do, in China. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Stay where you are, mate. Stay where you are. Well, well, all all the forces that be are trying to keep me in China for as long as possible. Um, the the lockdown um, delayed things, and now I'm trying to apply for the visa. And uh, because of the uh, the war and the Ukraine, there's a lot of people from the Ukraine applying for visas, so the visa processing times are considerably delayed. But that that's my plan at the moment. My uh, my son will be old enough to start school next year, so I want him to be in school in the UK. And I think, to be honest, I've been in China for a long time and you get in your comfort zone and it's not good to stay in your comfort zone for too long. Uh, so it's a massive challenge for me to move my business outside of China. Uh, and it's a challenge I've been working on for the last probably the last two years, actually. And just the process of trying to transition my business outside of one market and into other markets has already helped me grow a lot. So I'm already, you know, I've already benefited from this embracing this challenge. Um, but now the next step is visa and then actually move back and then settle down. <laughs> so it's a, uh, yeah, a lot of challenges in the coming months and I expect a lot of growing as well. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a lot of, I mean, the, the book's coming out and, and there's going to be a lot of, demand on your time how do you see yourself as a as a business where do you see yourself going are, are you you know are you going to be supporting countries to uh, relate better into the chinese markets or you know what what's going to be your focus hmm so my focus will be on leaders from all around the world to be honest although probably uh, especially initially more within the asia pacific region uh i i'm i'm very familiar with asian cultures and the challenges they face working in international environments so definitely going to start focusing and continue to focus on 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 that but generally i want to focus on helping leaders bring more meaning to daily conversations i i think storytelling you know, it's not, as I described earlier, it's not just about telling stories. It's about shaping the stories people believe in. I think it's an essential skill for leadership. And I think it's an essential skill for business. Because if you can't tell your story, you can't create value. Value is subjective. It's 100% subjective. And it's all about the story. I think a, a good example is if I have a Picasso painting or a replica painting that looks exactly the same as that Picasso painting, but was painted by a student. 
and I say this one was painted by Picasso, this one was painted by a student, the Picasso one is going to sell for so much more. They're exactly the same thing, but the difference is the story. And I think China is a very interesting example here. I think China has incredible value to offer to the world, incredible technology, incredible talent, but no one wants it. <laughs> and I think that's also partly China's fault. They haven't told their story. Uh, and so I think storytelling, being able to shape the stories people believe in, it's an essential skill for leaders. Uh, and if you can't do it, you can't create value. So I want to help more leaders bring more meaning to everyday conversations. Uh, that's that's going to be my focus going forward. Mm. And the added challenge of hybrid working and, mm. and online working and, and actually having the space to be able to have those incidental coming togethers, shall we say? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I I love the virtual world. I, I really, really love it. I uh, I don't miss flying around the country, rushing to get to the next venue, waiting in a taxi. I love the virtual world. Brings with it its own fresh set of challenges, but it allows me to work anywhere in the world um, with anyone in the world. So now it's possible for me to go back to the UK and continue serving the Asia Pacific region, for example. So I, I'm a huge fan of the virtual world. I think there are even some advantages that the virtual world can bring that uh, the non-virtual world doesn't have. So I'm, yeah, I'm very excited to uh, be doing more and more work um, virtually. Hybrid, <laughs> hybrid, I'm not so sure about. Hybrid brings a lot of challenges, uh, but virtual, I, I definitely enjoy. <laughs> I think hybrid may be just, clinging on to the status quo and, and hoping that mm -hmm. uh, things will be the same the same as they were pre-COVID. You know, I think for me, one of the things we need to evolve through is how we create that relational piece in an online world where, you know, we don't have the, you know, the couple of minutes before the meeting starts mm -hmm. where we can actually make contact with people and stuff. And yeah. and maybe maybe one of the challenges for leaders is is around how they manage, as they used to call them in management speak, the shoulders of the meetings. Because we we just we hit that button and we're in the meeting and it's business, 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 and then we hit that button and we're out of the meeting and we're mm. back in our own lonely little world. How do leaders adapt that to actually create those contact pieces around being able to share those narratives yeah i i think that's a really a really important point a big challenge many companies are facing right now and it seems to be about creating the structure for creating a formalized structure for the informal conversations to take place uh that seems to be the kind of solution that some companies are thinking of, like, for example, scheduling a virtual coffee hour, although I, I, I haven't heard of any really good solutions so far. It's a, a very, very big challenge because you need to have that personal time. The more time you spend talking about personal things, the more of a personal relationship you will have. And you need those personal relationships to get work done. Mm. So it's a very big challenge. I haven't seen an ideal solution yet. I think we're probably entering a new age where 
we're still discovering <laughs> how to build a culture around the, these new norms that we found ourselves in. Mm. So, yeah, I, I guess we'll be discovering the uh, solutions to that over the next few years. Yeah, we're a social ape living in a socially distanced world. Mm. It's, yeah, uh, exactly. it's, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly or otherwise we evolve. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jamie, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you particularly want to get across? No, no, we've, uh, we've covered, covered everything I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, um, nothing that comes to mind at the moment. Okay. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us. We'll follow your journey back to the UK and, and, and we'll touch base again and see how you're getting on. Um, sure. So, yeah, thank you very much for joining us on Leaders and Managers Hub. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. They didn't set limits. Are you a follower or a visionary? Can you handle the load that you were meant to carry? Because we're on a mission. Listen, it's beyond description. We don't want to fit in if we're living in a contradiction. We need